like if you would, if you'd stand with me now for the reading of today's scripture from which Pastor Wayne will be preaching. <clears throat> Comes Colossians verses, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Read this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you open our eyes to hear, or ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to take in and grow in our love for you. And we ask that you give Pastor Wayne good recall this morning from his time preparing this message and use him today to clearly and effectively proclaim your word. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as Ron said, I want to thank Joe Mike and uh, the others up here with him, uh, Megan and Amy and Ryan and Jeff and so forth. They're uh, uh, filling in for uh, Kevin, who is um, in Michigan doing a wedding. And uh, Tim is also out of town. Uh, he's in Kansas. Uh, there are others who are, are gone this week as well, so we have quite a few who are missing. But uh, we really appreciate these folks uh, filling in. They're, they're used to having Kevin here to kind of uh, lead them, and so to kind of be on their own this morning uh, is, uh, is a little unusual, but yet I, I think they did a great job, and I appreciate them. You know, today is Pentecost. Did you realize that? It's Pentecost. Uh, that's the Greek word for 50. It's in reference to the 50th day after the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits occurred uh, two days after Passover. It's the beginning of the grain harvest when God's people were to give their first fruits with thanksgiving. First fruits offerings are an expression of gratitude, not just for past blessings, but also future blessings. You know, Paul speaks of Christ as the Passover lamb, the, Passover, the one without blemish who atones for sin. And his resurrection is the first fruits, the first fruits of those who die in him and are raised from the dead. So following the resurrection, he spends 40 days teaching his disciples before he ascends to the Father. Then as he promised, he sends the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth at Pentecost. And this is a time when all male Jews were required to be in Jerusalem. Now in our study through the Gospel of John over the past couple of years, we saw how in the epilogue the last couple of weeks, chapter 21, Christ assures Peter he will not falter in the future as he had previously done in Jerusalem when Christ was crucified. But he will be faithful to the end. He will die on an inverted cross in Rome. So he and the other disciples are instructed by Christ to wait. You wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 1. How will they know the Holy Spirit has come? How will they know that has happened? Well, on the day of Pentecost, this is Acts 2, the disciples are gathered together when they hear a mighty rushing wind and they see tongues of fire appear above them. And they can now speak in various languages as the Spirit enables. This is the reversal of the curse that we see in the, at the Tower of Babel in uh, the Old Testament where this, these, these various languages come as a, as a judgment upon the people. 
That is now reversed in Christ. There will be no Jew or Gentile. We're all going to be one. So you kind of get this visual picture of this. Of all these Jews from all these nations, they're gathered right here in Jerusalem. And now they hear the gospel in their own language. And in the list of the nations present is Phrygia. Now I want you to remember that. The, the appearance of fire is evidence of the Lord's presence. You remember? His Shekinah glory appears above the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. As fire is a means of purification, it visually demonstrates the holy presence of the Lord. And the mighty rushing wind of which Christ spoke to Nicodemus in John 3 represents the Holy Spirit. Just as the Lord breathed physical life into Adam, Genesis 2, he breathes new life into spiritually dead men by means of the Holy Spirit. And among those present at Pentecost were men from Phrygia. They say, well, where is that? Well, today we call it Turkey. But it's a, it's a body of, of land that is just south of the Black Sea, it's just east of the Aegean Sea, and it's just north of the Mediterranean Sea. It's the location of where the seven churches that are addressed in Revelation 2 and 3, this is the location of those churches. Now, if you'll notice on the map up there, you see you locate Ephesus. It's east of Italy and Greece across the Aegean Sea on the west coast of this Roman province called Asia Minor. From Ephesus, if you travel 100 miles inland, you come to Colossae along with Areopolis and Laodicea. There are a triad of cities on the Lycus River. The Lycus River was known in that day for its flooding. And when the waters would rise and then they would lower again, you would see limestone deposits, chalk deposits that made amazing configurations in the land. But because of, of the flooding, because of the river, this is very, very fertile soil. So it becomes a great place to raise sheep. And not only sheep, but they would use the chalk deposits to make dyes. So this area becomes the wool capital of the ancient world. It's a Gentile city, dates back hundreds of years before the incarnate arrival of Christ. But by the first century, there are around 50,000 Jews that have settled in this area. And the reason we know that is because they have uncovered the tax records of that day from that area. So that's a fairly accurate number. Now to our knowledge, to our knowledge, Paul never went to Colossae. But on his third missionary journey, he stays in Ephesus for two to three years. This is back in the 50s. I'm not talking about 1950s. I'm talking about the original 50s. And people throughout Asia Minor would come to him, study from him. And that's how the seven churches John addresses in the book of Revelation are, are started, along with the churches of Colossae and Areopolis. You can read about this in Acts 19. Among those who come from this triad of cities to Ephesus to study under Paul's teaching are guys named Epaphras and Philemon. They study under the Apostle Paul and then they start churches in Colossae, Laodicea, and Areopolis. After Paul leaves Ephesus, he returns to Jerusalem. You remember what happens? 
He is eventually arrested, and then he is sent to Rome to be put on trial. While in Rome, he is kept in prison where he is allowed to have visitors. So Epaphras comes and tells him what's happening in the Lycus River Valley, particularly at Colossae. This is a church that was started in Philemon's home. Now this is a very, very young church. And yet Epaphras brings a really good report regarding the people. But he also shares with Paul his great concern about the dangers they're going to face. So the second thing that I want you to notice this morning is the problem. What is the problem? Well, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Empty deceit, according to human tradition, elemental spirits of the world. Why is he doing that? Well, Greeks in the Lycus Valley really prided themselves on how intellectual their philosophical systems were. So many of these new Christians are being told, hey, listen, you don't have the whole story here. You've heard the gospel. God is holy. You are not. Christ came incarnate. He lives the life you did not live. He dies the death you could not die. He dies in atonement to the holy and just wrath of God for your sin. And so by his grace, through faith in him, in his finished work at the cross, you are saved. Yes, that's what you've heard. But I'm telling you, there's more to it than that. There's more to it. And you'll see as we go through this, this epistle, they claimed that they had additional revelation, special revelation. They'd had visions given to them by God that provided deeper insights into these divine mysteries. And so Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 18, these mystics are puffed up without reason. Don't listen to them. So why does he write that? Well, this church is under a cultural attack. It will be identified in the next century as Gnosticism. Gnost, uh, gnosis is the word for to know, the Greek word for to know. And that's where you get the, the, the name Gnostics. Those that are in the know. It's a mystical, subjective, emotional approach to truth. Now, this dates back well before the Greek philosopher Plato. It goes all the way back, really, to the Garden of Eden, where the question, where the question is first asked, Hath God really said? Do you really believe that, Eve? Adam, surely you don't believe that. Think for yourself. Be your own God. Now, these kind of cultural attacks are of major concern to Epaphras, to Philemon, and to the Apostle Paul. And to complicate matters, to make it even worse, many of the Jews who settle in this area, either because of the hot mineral springs there in Areopolis, you remember that, that Christ uh, described the church at Laodicea as lukewarm in Revelation 3? Why did he say that? There were these hot springs in Areopolis that were very relaxing. They believed that they had um, real medical uh, health benefits to them. And so, you know, you could go there and, and get into these hot springs and it would relax you. And then they also had cold water that came from wells. It was very refreshing in the heat of the day. Well, the problem is, is Laodicea didn't have their own water supply. They were neither hot nor cold. 
they received their water from Areopolis by means of an aqueduct. And by the time this, the, the, these waters coming from these hot springs would arrive, they were lukewarm. They were neither relaxing nor refreshing. And so Christ says in the book of Revelation, your lack of works is just as repulsive as that lukewarm water that you receive that's neither hot nor cold. So whether it's the hot springs there in Areopolis, or maybe it's the, the wool and dye industry, tens of thousands of Jews have come to this Gentile region and they have brought with them their legalism. If you're a Jewish Christian, some of you are. We had some in the first service. If you're a Jewish Christian, it is essential that you keep the Jewish dietary laws. It's essential that you keep the Jewish holy days. It's essential that you practice all the Jewish ceremonies associated with the Sabbath and festivals and the new moon. New moon is, just comes from the Hebrew word for month because it's by the moon the Lord had them dating their months. And this is very similar to what we would call today sacramentalism. And many of you are from a Catholic background, and so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that the Lord said uh, through Isaiah in his day that he hated. He said he hated it. I hate it when you trust in rituals without repentance. I hate it. These legalistic Jews were trying to impose a religious legalism on relatively new Christians that nullified the good news of the gospel. So whenever you hear folks today talking about the Colossian heresy, it's really a very strange mixture of Greek philosophy from the culture and Jewish legalism from devoutly religious people, Jews. John Stott, as I was reading his book on this recently, associated this with the kind of thing we see today concerning sacraments as a means for receiving God's grace. Sacraments comes from the Latin word for holy obligation. But a sacrament is something that is administered to you as a means for administering God's grace. Administering God's grace? In addition to the atoning death of Christ? Yeah. He said this idea of extra revelation through mysticism is very similar not only to, to the religious cults. You know, usually when you think of that kind of mystic um, behavior, you think of, you know, Mormons, uh, Joseph Smith's uh, uh, discovery, those tablets and, and uh, the hieroglyphics on it and how he, inter you know, it just, it's just nonsense. Or Jehovah Witnesses, maybe. But he said, you know, even in the realm of what we call Christianity, there's um, Pentecostalism. There's the charismatic movement. Uh, there are others who claim that they are receiving new revelation and access to God's word. And that your faith in Christ is not complete. You're not really a varsity Christian until you practice ecstatic utterances. Till you receive these new messages from the Lord. I mean, that's kind of like what the Greek culture was imposing on this 
these new churches. And the legalistic claims of the Jewish community are similar to those who will say even today, you know, yeah, I know that Christ said it is finished, which by the way, that's what he meant. It is finished. But there are certain things now that you must do to be saved. Really? I mean, there are things that we do by the grace of God. It brings about changes within our life as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. But we don't add anything through those works to our atonement. The atonement that Christ accomplished at the cross. There's nothing that needs to be added to that. You know, to claim that we do add something to that. You know, I've, I've heard individuals say, you know, I've been saved three times. How did that happen? How did you get saved and get lost again? Well, it's because of what they were doing. It's what they were adding to the atoning work of Christ. How is that possible? We don't add anything to that. And when you claim that you do, when you claim that you do, you diminish his grace and you compromise his glory. So the Holy Spirit through Paul will say, look, all of these philosophies that lead to spiritual arrogance are foreign to Christianity. They're foreign to Christianity. Don't let them come in. You know, there are many wonderful disciplines within the, within the Christian life. Fasting is a wonderful discipline. Quiet times are wonderful disciplines. But if you are relying on whether or not you fast or how many quiet times you have to justify you before the Lord in addition to the atoning death of Christ at Calvary, then you are deceived. And see, the discipline is not really the problem, is it? What is the problem? The problem is the heretical attitude we have towards those disciplines. And when you allow that to seep into your life or seep into the life of the church, it leads to Phariseeism, legalism. And what does legalism within the church lead to? Divisiveness. And it nullifies the testimony of God's grace in our lives. Look, observing a Jewish festival because you are Jewish is like observing the 4th of July because you're an American. However, when someone says you must be circumcised, you must observe this festival, you must keep these dietary laws, you must do this, you must do that in order to be right with the law, Lord, they nullify the good news of the gospel. That Christ's atoning work at Calvary is sufficient. Now, are there disciplines within the Christian life whereby we buffet our bodies daily? Absolutely. But we don't do that to be saved. Our salvation is a gift from the Lord. We do that because we are saved. We don't want sin reigning in our life any longer. So the problem, particularly in Colossae, is that both cultural and religious attacks are being made upon these good people who are new Christians. So let's look at the people that are included in these opening verses, how, how the Lord uh, addresses this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, 
Now, through whom does the Holy Spirit address these issues? Paul. Why? An apostle of Christ. Who is Paul? He's a former Pharisee, as you know. A persecutor of the church, converted on his way to, uh, to arrest more Christians and to take them to trial. And on that road to Damascus, Christ encounters him. And it totally transforms his life. He will later identify himself to the Philippian church as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He will say, you know, I studied under the best, Gamaliel, graduated from his school. That's like going to Harvard. He's a Roman citizen, according to Acts 22. This guy, Saul of Tarsus, is a leading rabbi of his day. He is so well-versed in the Greek culture Because he's grown up in Tarsus, he knows how to speak even to Greeks as well as to Jews. He now identifies himself as an apostle of Christ. What does that mean? Well, the word apostle simply means sent by. He's sent by Christ. Now, there were hundreds of disciples. Disciples are learners. They're followers. But the ones that Christ chose to be apostles had to not only be eyewitnesses of his resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 9, but they were identified by the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, who gave them the ability to provide signs and wonders. They were able to do divine miracles, like what Christ used to confirm his deity on earth. He now, through these individuals, confirms their commission to establish the ecclesiastical body of Christ on earth, With what? With signs and wonders. Now, others in that day were apostles in the generic sense of the word. I mean, Barnabas is called an apostle. Uh, Titus, Epaphroditus, Apollos. But there's no indication they're a part of this unique commissioning of the twelve, plus Paul, through whom the New Testament scriptures are given, confirmed by signs and wonders. Now, there are those today who are trying to reestablish and have claimed to have reestablished the office of, uh, of apostolic authority as they declare themselves to be the kind of the final source of authority. They claim to be apostles in the sense of the Twelve and Paul. And I just want you to know that movement, by the way, is anti-biblical. You know why? You know why it's heretical? is because the Bible is very clear that the apostolic authority that Christ established through the Twelve and Paul is past tense. It's past tense. Read it for yourself in Jude. When he's addressing the church regarding false teachers, he said, I found it necessary to contend for the faith. The faith is all the truth the Lord has given us in his word. I, I found it necessary to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Hebrews 2. It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard while the Lord also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That's why Paul warns in in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, listen, Deceivers will prey upon those who are gullible. And then he compares these imposters to Satan himself who masquerades as an angel of light. 
He told the Ephesian elders, after he had been there for two to three years, after he had trained them and established them as well as others that he had sent out to start other churches, he says, listen, when I leave, when I leave, savage wolves will arise in your midst. They will. They'll distort truth. Why? To draw people to themselves. John, the apostle, warns about this in 1 John 4. He said, don't believe every spirit. You've got to test them to see if they are of the Lord. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many. How are we to test them? The first thing you look for is, do they deny that God's word is infallible? I had a seminary professor. I, I didn't have any classes under him, but I was actually eating breakfast with him at Panera one morning. And uh, he heard me teaching 30, 40 of our guys on the reliability of Scripture, the, the infallibility of God's Word. And he said, man, you were hit that pretty hard this morning. I said, well, it needs to be hit hard. I said, you surely believe that, don't you? You're teaching homiletics. You're teaching hermeneutics. Surely you believe that, don't you? He said, oh, well, I... I, I know too much to believe that. Really? Where'd you get your PhD? Oh, uh, Duke Seminary. That explains it. That's why they call them blue devils. Yeah, I don't believe that God's omnipotent and holy enough to be able to give us a, an accurate word through even fallen men. Just don't believe that. Okay, so then who's in authority? Well, we are. We are in authority. So you're going to determine which scriptures were to believe and which ones were to reject, right? Yeah, yeah. Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, when they measure themselves by one another and they compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. First test. Do they teach and preach from God's word that is infallible? And reliable. Do they rightly handle God's word? Or are they out there cherry picking it? What's called eisegetical interpretation. Whereby they'll, they'll read a text and then they'll use that text to support what they wanted to say. They read into the text what they wanted to get out of the text. Rather than expositorily taking out of the text what the Lord actually said. And whether it's in seminaries or in churches or even in small groups, the mishandling of biblical truth often occurs whenever individuals emphasize their personal experience. Whenever they are relying upon mysticism to determine truth as opposed to rightly handling what the truth actually says. I mean, this is why Luke records in Acts 2 that the early Christians devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. The eyewitnesses of his resurrection who had been trained by Christ. Who had been given the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, to guide them into all truth. Just as Christ promised in John 16. So make a note in the margins of, um, of Colossians 1 here 
that Paul does not appoint himself to be an apostle. He does not apply for the position of apostleship. He doesn't ask anyone if he can be an apostle. He says, I am an apostle of Christ by the will of God. What's he mean by that? Well, the Lord said to Ananias, after he encounters Saul, which is his Hebrew name in Acts 9, he tells Ananias, this guy is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. I chose him. Saul did not find the Lord through his religious activity. The Lord was never lost. Saul was lost. The Lord chose Saul, who was lost in his academic world of self-righteousness. Saul did not make a decision for Christ. It was by the will of God that Saul came to faith in Christ. And then he was made an apostle for the purpose of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, Galatians 2. In Acts 13, while worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit set him apart for the work to which he had been called. Now, it might be an interesting footnote here that the word apostle is first used in the context of shipping. A naval commander sent with cargo was an apostle. That word was picked up out of that culture and used of Ahijah in the Old Testament. He's a messenger sent by the Lord, an apostle who tells Jeroboam about how the kingdom will be divided after Solomon's reign. Then that word is brought into the New Testament and is used 79 times. Sent. Sent. Paul, which is his Roman name. Saul's his Hebrew name. Paul is his Roman name. Is set apart, by, is set apart at birth by God's grace, Galatians 1, to preach among the Gentiles as an apostle sent. By Christ, to make the Gentiles a holy offering under the Lord, according to Romans 15. So, Paul, groomed by the Lord for this task, receiving a classical Roman education in Tarsus, grounded in the Mosaic law under Gamaliel, knows how to effectively use illustrations from Greek culture, a Pharisee with access to the synagogues, a Roman citizen who can travel wherever the Lord sent him is the one the Lord chose, chose to make corrections through these epistles to the lies that are trying to infiltrate the body of Christ. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Who is Timothy? You know him. Young fellow whose father was a Gentile, a Greek. His mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois, were Jewish. And uh, he's a young man who met Paul during his first missionary journey, most likely, there in Lystra. And Paul takes him under his wing. He disciples him, and he has him to serve in a variety of churches before he makes him the pastor of the church there at Ephesus. So this message is from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Timothy was most likely there with him to, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, let's just circle the word saints there, if you would. Uh, the word saints does not mean those who after death are beatified and then prayed to. Do you realize that's nowhere found in Scripture? Nowhere. 
Actually, praying to the dead is strictly forbidden, according to Deuteronomy 18.11. And the word saints comes from the word hagias. It means to be consecrated to the Lord. And you know what? It's always used in the scripture in the plural. Always in the plural. Because it refers to all who are part of the body of Christ. You never hear anybody referred to as St. Paul or St. Peter or St. John. It's always in the plural. If you are in Christ, who has died to the just wrath of God for sin, then even though you are not delivered from the current presence of sin, listen, you have been delivered from the penalty of sin. And you have been consecrated unto the Lord. You've been given his word and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So saints, scripturally speaking, are not dead people to whom we pray. Saints are people who are alive on earth, called to worship and pray to the Lord as they serve within the body of Christ. So the word saints is a synonym for Christians. I know this is tough to swallow. It really is. It's, it's hard to wrap your mind around this, especially when, you know, you consider my, my, my good friend, John Atterbury, whom I dearly love. You know, to think of him as a saint, it really takes some imagination. But it's true. It's true. You notice Paul calls them faithful brothers. They're not seeking to worship the Lord according to the winds of the culture. They're not seeking to, to worship him according to the lies of the apostates or according to legalism, according to religion. But the reason Epaphras, who's a Gentile, who starts this, this, this church, he takes the gospel to them, and it starts in, in Philemon's home. The reason that, that he and Philemon and Paul, a Hebrew, commissioned to take the gospel to Gentiles, the reason they're concerned is because new Christians, new Christians are vulnerable. This is why in verses 6 and 7, Paul will say, remember what you learned from Epaphras. Remember that. Don't let these people to persuade you differently. Don't let them influence you. Colossians 4.12, he always wrestles in prayer for you. Um... And then he closes verse 2 with grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is the greeting used in each of Paul's epistles. Charis, grace. It's the Greek uh, word that recognizes our new identity in Christ is by God's grace. We are new creations. And our ring, peace, peace. The Greek equivalent of the Hebrew shalom. We are at peace with the Father through the atoning work of the incarnate Son. So it is by grace, peace to you from the Father. So what lessons are we to learn from this? Well, first of all, our fellowship in Christ. See that in verse 2, in Christ? It's rooted in God's grace. It has to be. You'll remember in, in John 17... Christ said the unity we experience would be based on what? The relationship that we have with him. Just as he is one with the Father, 
we will be one with him and therefore one with one another. As iron sharpens iron, we will sharpen one another's faith. We'll stir up one another in love and good works to God's glory. And that leads us to the second point. Our fellowship in Christ should always result in God's glory. Always. You know, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but, but Paul, I think, kind of corrects this whole misconception that our fellowship has to do with how much time we spend with one another. I mean, Paul had a spiritual relationship with these people. He never met them. He'd never been to their church. We have no indication he was ever in Colossae. And yet he still has a burden for them. He still addresses them as a part of his family in Christ. And that's why he includes greetings from Timothy. Who is Timothy? Our brother. Not my brother. Our brother. Yours too. So Paul clears up this this kind of modern misconception about the purpose for fellowship. The purpose for fellowship is not to meet my needs. It's not. My fellowship with you ought not be about what I can get from you. But what we do together for the cause of Christ brings glory to our Lord. Now, I'll benefit from our fellowship, no question about it. It is a byproduct, but it's not the focus. It's not the primary focus. We meet the needs of one another in ministry when you and I, whether I know you very well or not, when you and I work together for God's glory. And it's not about how much time we spend together. It's about how much effort we put forth in our time together, serving Christ as we meet the needs of others in his name to God's glory. You know, the essence of koinonia, which is the Greek word for fellowship, was that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to that. Breaking bread and prayer. In other words, they studied God's word together. They taught it. As you are taught, you teach to others. They, they broke bread together in fellowship. They prayed together. And what was the result of that? What was the result of that that we saw in the early church? They honored one another in the Lord, Romans 12. They lived in harmony with one another, 1 Peter 3. They served one another, Galatians 5. They were compassionate to one another, Ephesians 4. They admonished one another, Colossians 3. They encouraged one another, 1 Thessalonians 5. They spurred one another on towards, towards love and good deeds, Hebrews 10. And they loved one another. They loved one another, 1 John 3. That's why when, when Christians gather for Bible study, whether it's in small group during the week, whether it's in a larger fellowship in Sunday school or in worship, regardless of how small or how large, when they meet together, there's to be no gossiping. There's to be no backbiting. There's to be no undermining. The purpose for our fellowship in Christ is to always bring God glory. And when that happens, when that happens, we all benefit. All of us. We all benefit. 
Now, if you have any questions about any of this, you have a question about what it, it, it means to, to be a Christian, or maybe you are a Christian, you'd like to be a part of this fellowship. I had some come to me after the first service. Uh, I'd encourage you to go to the connect table in the back. There are, are some cards there. If you're not receiving the devotions throughout the week or the announcements of things that are coming up, um, some of the, um, uh, the, the great activities that are available for men's fellowship, women's fellowship, service, uh, then that means we don't have you in the database. So if you would take one of those cards, just give us your email address, make sure someone there at the connect table receives that or you can give it to me if you like. Uh, and we'll be glad to, to help get you connected. If you have any questions, as Spurgeon used to say, I'll be glad to see you in my study. And so just let me know and email me and we'll set a time uh, and I'll, I'll be glad to meet with any and all of you. Now, with that said, I was asked to make this one last announcement before we pray. Uh, this is, is not Colossae. This is VBS, okay? And so what we need for you to do is when this is over, if there, if there uh, just some of you men could volunteer, women if you want to, uh, we'd like for you to take down all the chairs. We need them put back on the racks and put in this uh, room back here so that we have this place uh, cleared for Vacation Bible School, which begins this evening. Thank you for your help. Stay with me, Mr. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. And boy, do we look forward to the study of your word, which you have canonized and preserved and provided in a language that we can read and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit can understand and can apply in a way that truly, truly glorifies you. Lord, I pray that all those that you have recreated in Christ will indeed live this week to the glory of your name. And Lord, I pray that your, your blessing would certainly be upon and your spirit with those that are serving in Vacation Bible School this week, all the little children that will be coming to sing and to be introduced to the gospel, have those truths resonate within their hearts. Father, we really thank you for how special you have made our family in Christ to be. We're very thankful. And we pray with a great deal of gratitude this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.